Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. In the summer of 1902, as Susan and Elizabeth Yates were packing up yet another house, a further move in a rather peripatetic journey through life, little could they have imagined that this return to Ireland would finally bring stability and a home for life. Then aged 36 and 34 respectively, and both single, life had rather awkwardly stitched the sisters to one another. Both had flourished in the progressive, artistic community of London's Bedford Park. Susan, known as Lily to distinguish her from her mother, was a highly regarded art embroiderer, having trained within the arts and crafts movement and worked under William Morris and his daughter, May, at the renowned Kemscott House, while Elizabeth, often referred to as Lolly, had excelled as both an innovative art teacher and a published author of four highly successful brushwork manuals. Indeed, over the previous decade, it was the sisters' earnings that had kept the Yates family home afloat. The return to Dublin had been prompted by two events. Firstly, the decision by their father, painter John B., not to come back to London after a well-received showing of his work in Dublin led him to believe lucrative commissions would only be secured if he resided there. And secondly, but of greater significance, was a proposal made to Lillian Lolly by the pioneering figure of designer Evelyn Gleeson to join with her in establishing Dunemer Industries in Dundrum in County Dublin. Gleeson was keen to establish an arts and crafts cooperative on the Morris model that would not only make beautiful Irish goods, but as a feminist, she wanted to provide opportunity and training for young Irish women. The arts and craft movement was a reaction against what its proponents, like William Morris and John Ruskin, perceived as a decline in design and decoration standards due to increased mechanisation and a rapidly expanding industrial age. At its heart were ideals of craftsmanship, stressing the inherent beauty of the material, the importance of nature as an inspiration, and the value of simplicity, utility and beauty. It was Lily's embroidery that first drew Gleeson to the possibility of collaborating with the sisters. But Lolly had a firm idea that Dunemer could also design and produce Irish fine press books, an ambition she shared with her brother William Butler Yeats. She enrolled with the Women's Printing Society, a British body established to give women an opportunity to learn the skills of hand-setting type and the craft of fine hand-press printing and bookmaking. After a loose business arrangement was agreed between the three women, work began in the autumn of 1902 at a large house Gleeson acquired in Dundrum, renamed Dunemer, after the legendary wife of Cúchulain, renowned for both her beauty and her craftwork. By 1904, Dunemer had already achieved international acclaim and commercial success for its produce across weaving and embroidery, including notable ecclesiastical commissions, as well as its print publications. A number of books reviving the beautiful craft of printing as an art, as the company Prospectus put it, have been created, beginning with In the Seven Woods, a volume of poems by W.B. Yeats. Finished on the 16th of July 1903, the book was a major achievement for Elizabeth and W.B. himself, who was also the press's editor. 
It marked the publication of an exclusively Irish book by a uniquely Irish art press and one that was somewhat enviously noted by Joyce two decades later in Ulysses. However, the sisters and Gleeson, these three strong-minded women, as the sisters' biographer Gifford Lewis put it, were increasingly at odds and the partnership ended by the summer of 1908. Leaving Dunemer, Lily and Lolly brought both the embroidery and hand press operations into a new enterprise, which they called the Kula Industries. Named after the ancient barony in which the business's four-room cottage stood, not far from their home on the Churchtown Road, it had an idyllic setting, surrounded by fields with a view over the mountains. Over the next three decades, until the death of Elizabeth in the winter of 1940, Kula would experience its most prodigious creative period, producing over 60 books from writers including Yeats, Singh, Lady Gregory, Catherine Tynan, Oliver St. John Gogarty and Frank O'Connor, three series of the highly popular illustrated periodical A Broadside of poems and ballads featuring artists Jack B. Yeats, Harry Kernoff, Morris McGonagall and Sean O'Sullivan, and a range of hand-coloured prints, greeting cards and calendars with artworks from Dorothy Blackman, Eileen Peace, Hilda Roberts, Beatrice Campbell and Eileen Gregg, to name but a few. Added to this was a steady output of exquisite embroidery pieces, from ecclesiastical banners and cloths to decorative wall hangings, cradle covers, cushion squares, table centres and a number of beautifully embroidered pictures. Guided by the Socialist Guild principles of Morris and the ideals of the arts and crafts movement, the Yates sisters and a team of loyal women colleagues sustained an all-female art enterprise for over 40 years. Despite numerous setbacks and financial challenges in what was predominantly a male preserve, Kula Industries, visual and literary works were distributed throughout the world and made a significant contribution to shaping a cultural identity for the new Irish state. Today, the eight sisters would likely be recognised with numerous accolades, perhaps a sea of Estana honour, or maybe Businesswoman of the Year. But instead, their successes have largely been forgotten, lost in the shadows of the Yates men. It's time for us to shine a light on their fine achievements. The Big Black Dog My uncle took me to visit his uncle and see the big black dog, best gun dog in the county. My uncle's uncle lived in a mud cabin near the bog of Bowermean. He looked like Les Murray and wore a brown felt hat. Inside he showed me the pelt of the otter they'd shot in the river one night they were waiting for duck. The big black dog had retrieved it. Years later, I would sit with the uncles in the black water rushes, waiting for duck and total darkness, except for the manic horizon light, when I felt an otter's weight 
shimmy across my rubber boots. My uncle's uncle reached up the chimney and pulled down the shotgun. I put my finger into the barrel to feel the tiny holes where pellets had pitted the steel. The uncles sat by the fire, sipping sweet tea. They talked about a neighbour who watched the railway gates and had the Spanish shotgun. We met him on the lane one day and saw it, sleek and black and deadly as a painting by Velasquez. The uncle's uncle was a stonecutter in the quarry at Ardbracken, like all his family before him. Only one of the cousins still cuts stone, though that's not quite true. Once a year he flies first class to China and fills containers with cut stone, which he ships back to Ireland and chips his neighbours' names on. In an animated PowerPoint presentation, I see the mud mutate into brick and concrete, with water on top and electricity, TV aerials, slated roofs, then come the glass and steel conservatories, the gravelled car parks, where once the scallions and rhubarb grew. Now my cousins live in new houses, with six bedrooms en suite. Their living room is big as a hotel lounge. They don't know enough people to fill the sofas on which they loll watching giant screens, while occasionally glancing out through the panoramic windows at the same old green field where now their thoroughbred horses graze. I do not begrudge them anything. Day in, day out, all day long, they cut the stone, like the men who built the pyramids or Newgrange. They harvested the hay, they brought the turf home, they dug potatoes in the mud, on their hands and knees, in the wind and rain. I'm conflating all this from childhood memories and digitalised census archives, scrolling through their lives in a café on the Rue Soufflot, attending to the ancestral hubbub. At other tables, the students pore over spreadsheets and calligraphed notes. They've been sitting here for hundreds of years with their legal codes and pearl earrings. The big, black dog lay on the stones of the yard. Arthritic and gaunt, he raised himself up like a cormorant to lick my hand. What can you do that no one else can do? She was pulling hard in her cigarette with one silver-ringed hand as she asked me that, turning the pages of my sketchbook with the other. It was my first London winter at St Martin's College, 1999. Feeling desolate, I'd gone to this formidable professor for guidance. What can you do that no one else can do? She huffed in that smoke-filled room on Charing Cross Road. What can you do? In time, she'd be the voice in my head, 
a haunt, a goad. What did I do? I concocted a plan of sorts. I was beginning to see that I could find things. There were connections in expressions. Between a building and a dress. Between a hairstyle. At a bus stop and a line within my drawings. I started a dialogue with design, asking it, what is it we've been told we mustn't do with clothes? As one of three Irish students in the fashion department MA course on Charing Cross Road, I asked myself, what is it that makes me Irish and does it matter? I thought of Waterford Crystal and Carrick Macross lace, haunted by the idea that one shouldn't use chandelier crystal on cloth or lace. Oh, I knew that well. Chandelier crystals are heavy, a cumbersome eight inches long. They may smash to pieces. I asked again, I asked fashion, how does one clean a dress entirely covered in them? How to secure a crystal to cloth without pulling, tearing, thread slipping, glass shattering? Has anyone really done this? What about crystal heeled shoes? Oh, sweet, yes. Crystals. Where could I get them? Waterford Crystal didn't reply to an unknown fashion student's request. So I began by collecting broken chandeliers. All across London, I hunted for them in far out places. I used whatever cash I had from reselling cashmere found in bourgeois charity shops on trips across West London. Chelsea on Wednesdays was best for cashmere. Nothing moth-eaten, nothing pilled. On cold early mornings I hunted with a chew pass and an empty suitcase. I was welcomed by little old women with clean fingernails behind giant tills. Come early for the best pieces. And oh, the vintage clothes I found. Floral house coats, camel hair pleated skirts, woven gabardine suiting that told me of 1970s Germany in air hostess tones of teals and blues. A moth-chewed satin corset, boned for a showgirl. Cedar balls and washing powder rising among fake flower counters and handwritten price tags. Pillar box red patent heels, but mud-tipped. The mud making me homesick for the west of Ireland. But never lonely. A parade of ghosts accompanied me on my quests. All the women who wore these garments, who handled these things, who dressed beds, swept hallways, tended to a baby perhaps, who replaced an odd button while searching for the closest matching threads. They were my procession of creative possibilities. They dressed me, educated me, questioned me, exhausted me, guiding me on my path to creativity. What can I do that no one else can do? I traipsed across London from zone one to nine, hunting, plundering, experiencing the rush of the finds, the beauty, the possibilities in between. What can I do that no one else can do? I still didn't know, not yet, but in the course of my searching that London winter, there were moments of creativity more lucid than I have ever known. No trophy, just pockets of brilliance. No pinpoints, just the emptiness of the cold and the full of my mind. Drawn down onto sketchbooks in fume-filled English cafes with condensation on their windows. Eggs, bacon and a cup of sweetheart. Every Sunday I sourced old chandeliers, on foot, 
from sellers at antique markets, from outdoor stalls and roofless ramshackle warehouses. Beautiful Art Nouveau chandelier with ornamental ball, a handwritten tag would read. Pretty floral arms equipped with a rare series of glassware composed of three tulips. There was not much internet sourcing in 1999. On Saturdays I walked from my flat on Tottenham Court Road to old Spitalfields and beyond. I befriended sellers, cradled in great big wool coats hardened from the cold, hardened from a life of uncertainty, selling their damaged wares under bridges. My crystals as vintage glass crystals, not acrylic or plastic. That's pure solid brass there, miss. It wasn't just chandeliers under the bridge. Lace dresses, like white Edwardian nighties, floated above, swinging from beaten wire hangers, next to damp carcasses of kitchen drawers, filled with nuts, screwdrivers, rusted bolts. I was reeled in by transistor radios, next to fading hot water bottles in greens and purples, with plastic-covered warning signs, past cassettes and vinyls, such fascinating covers, hard to leave behind. A wall of fishing rods, and then the postcards, my favourites. Signed, your loving sister, my dear friend, yours, my dear, wish you were here. My chandeliers sat like octopuses under the bridges, waiting. Lovely restored Victorian chandelier, ready to go, supporting eight candles on upswept arms. Appreciating their anatomy, I rescued them and carried my glass octopuses home. My search no longer a nothing. Tending to glass cuts on both hands when I was home again, I laid my octopuses on the bed, unhooking brass pins from each pendulogue. I polished each bevelled curve and sewed one crystal to cloth using buttonhole thread. No good trying again with wire. There was more to do. Covertly it was forming, but still all felt improbable, unattainable, unreachable. Clothes that made the sound of chandeliers. What could I do that no one else could do? This was what I could do. Feeling so lost, still, but deep down, I was finding my way. There's Teddy Fawcett himself. There are elephants in the field behind the strand, caravans, the smell of grass rotting under the tent, hay bales, the scent of burnt sugar, a woman wiping a stick around a big tub, gathering candy floss like wool, but lighter, more transparent. Inside the tent, they are playing that circus tune. Dad says, there's Teddy Fawcett himself. And there he is the ringmaster with his top hat and whip. Ladies and gentlemen, the Fawcett children. They come tumbling in, doing backbends, flips, handstands, 
wearing spangly leotards and shoes like ballet shoes. We are guests in the expensive seats around the ring. The tall clown with his big feet squirts water from a red flower on his yellow lapel. The little clown runs into the audience. He's like a child, but not a child. Horses with feathers on their heads gallop around the ring. A girl jumps from one to the other, stands on the bare back of a white horse, gripping his haunches with her toes, her arms outstretched. The smell of horses and sawdust, sweat, the thumpity thump of hooves and heaving breaths. Above us, a man and woman climb a rope to the trapeze. She hangs from her knees, then one ankle spinning like a top. They fly, catch and swing, do splits in the air. There's a man on a bicycle that is one big wheel, one small one, and no handlebars. He balances and cycles around, juggling balls and then fire. He eats fire. A girl walks on a ball and then turns herself inside out. When the show is over, they take off their costumes, start the clear up, taking down the tent. All those ups and downs. But we get to visit the caravan and it is so neat. Much neater than our house. Pajamas folded on pillows. We're given tea and fruitcake and when we are leaving, Mrs Fawcett kisses my cheek. I feel the imprint of her kiss all the way home. Like a promise that one day I might have sawdust in my veins and be able to tumble, flip, cartwheel and fly on the back of a galloping horse. Cycle. In Geraldine Tralee, handmaids errand run up and down the stony streets for their busy merchant king bosses whose pomposity knows no end. The brothers of the handmaids are glad of the work bestowed upon them in Bleneville and on the canal, stoking, heaving, lifting, knowing how to hold a barrel still on their shoulders. Some of them will make wives of some of the girls who work in the big houses, ones that avoid the paws of the sons of the house. Some will be lucky, some not. Some might steal something some day, a few eggs, a loaf of bread, get deported to the Indias. One year there was a wet harvest. Nothing could have prepared the community for their inability to save the crops. Winters are mild this near the sea. Summer's not too hot, and so on the cycle goes. It is 5am and I lay my head beside yours, like always. 
Your dappled ears are poking out of the blanket you're wrapped in, waiting for me to cuddle you in the way you prefer. Your tiny front paws placed around each other, back paws tucked into your pink fluffy belly. You died three hours ago. Your small lungs had filled with fluid and eventually you stopped breathing. I am in a space of no sleep. You were warm and soft as I brought you home from the vet at 3.30am on my lap, strapped in by the seatbelt. As we drove, I told you our plans. We would cuddle, we would go to the sea. Now you are becoming rigid beside me. I preferred when you were floppy and warm. Earlier, the vet carried you into the tiny room I was waiting in and shook his head. I'd spat there on empty roads to make it before you died. He had you wrapped in the wrong blanket. Your own one, which smelled of home, had gone missing. As the vet searched for it, I unwrapped your face and put your lolling tongue back in your mouth and tried to close your wild eyes. I held you to me. The vet returned and informed me that the blanket had been contaminated. I asked with what? Urine, he said, and I nearly screamed at him to get it. I carefully rewrapped you. We'd had a normal day. We mooched in the park. You potted around the garden, ate some moss, stared at me from your bed. You brought me toys to play with as I rolled out my yoga mat that morning. You were with me for nearly 13 of your 14 years. It is unfathomable to me that you were alone as you died. It is unfathomable to me that I'll never buy you another ice cream cone. The sun is up and the birds are singing. A friend rings me at 7am. I stroke your head and tell him about our terrible night of seizures and watching you struggling to breathe. I think I see your belly move and put my hand on it. I think I hear your short little breaths huffing into the blanket. Phantom visions and phantom breath, hardwired memories blurring with reality. It is so normal for us to lie together, you and me. You love lazy mornings in bed. I keep forgetting that you are dead. You acquiesced with grace to the dog buggy when your arthritis got too bad for long walks. We became conspicuous and well-known in our village. Thank you for your patience when I left you alone for long periods or caused you anxiety when I went for a swim. You'd wait paws up on the side of the buggy, alert to my every move. A friend gave us a bright pink dog backpack which significantly expanded our range of movement and range of conspicuousness. Every day people stopped to pet you. I was very proud of you. Everyone thinks their dog is the best dog and everyone is correct. Your pure love buoyed me as I wrote my memoir about the darkest dark of humanity. I wrote it on the kitchen table over two years, your pink fluffy bed a few feet away, your eyes locked onto my face. You were the antidote to the re-exposure to harm and trauma and pain. You made me inhale the air and see the trees and pay attention to beauty. You made me behave with love. You were my buffer, courageously sitting between me and the world's hard things. As long as you were okay, I was okay. There's no you anymore, and I'm not okay. Your presence is felt throughout my book. You were by my side far more than any human counterpart for every moment of its creation, your steady, loving presence surpassing any friend support. 
You even got the last word in my acknowledgements. Finally, thank you to my beloved Jack Russell Terrier, Missy, my tiny companion, who shows me what unconditional love is in every moment, with every little stretch, every breath. The best thing you taught me is that friendship is just presence. Your favourite thing was to be with me. To be with you was my favourite thing too. I knew I lived alone, but I didn't live alone until now. The house aches with emptiness. You filled my entire heart. I now have vast amounts of space inside myself. I don't know how to fill it. Write this, I suppose. In a while, we'll slowly get up and go to the beach with your teddy, bun bun, and a yellow flower a friend has given you. I'll keep you wrapped in your blanket. We'll walk our usual walk. We'll sit on the bench that we use to lower the backpack onto while you squirm to be released. Your head will loll on my shoulder, just as if you were sleeping. I'll hold you tight and kiss your head, and you'll feel again the sea wind move through your fur. All things considered. Ceaselessly, the magpie's rattlesnake call and noisy dance makes you sit up. It's like a raid. They drop from the sky and are simply there by chance, hopping down back walls and as quickly gone all at once, before the intemperate gull swings into view again, and so you have me idling by a window. Where did all the time go? From the rainy seasons out the country to the high summers of wraparound light as far as the swirling mackerel skies and the heavy cattle flummoxed by the wrong unmoving gate. We saw it all from under the stars. Now I only know what isn't there. On this morning's programme, you heard Neglected Reputations the Forgotten Yeats Sisters by Eunan McKinney. The Big Black Dog, a poem by Michael O'Loughlin. What Can You Do was by Joanne Hines. There's Tezzy, Teddy Fawcett Now, a poem by Lanny O'Hanlon. Cycle, a poem by Noel King. Missy was by Mia Doring. And All Things Considered, a poem by Gerald Daw. The music was duet of Lisa and Paulina from The Queen of Spades by Tchaikovsky, sung by Nadeshka Krasnaya and Vadim Fedorostev. The High Jig was by Martin Hayes and Dennis Cahill. An Ocean and a Rock by Lisa Hannigan. Gallop, Opus 20 by Strauss, played by the Desford Colliery Caterpillar Band. Lord Inchiquin by Carolyn, played by Marina Cassidy on harp. And Nocturne Number no. 1 by John Field, played on piano by Elizabeth Joy Rowe. And two exhibitions you may be interested in. The Yates Sisters and Kula is now open at Dundrum Library in County Dublin and that runs until the 22nd of July.
And Joanne Hines will be in conversation with Dr Rebecca Bell next Thursday, the 20th of July at 6pm at the Kevin Kavanagh Gallery in Dublin, ahead of the opening of her exhibition there, What We Carry With Us. And that exhibition will run until the 5th of August. See kevincavanagh.ie for details. On sound was Sheila Neville, and that was Sheila's last miscellany as she retired last week, and we wish her the best with her retirement. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Jane Byrne, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or to the programme website, rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.